beautiful song, choir. Thank you so much. The poet Samuel Coleridge was an Englishman, and he was once entertaining a guest at his home, and they were talking of a variety of subjects when the guest said to Mr. Coleridge, I don't think that parents should instruct their children or teach their children anything about religion. They should learn on their own when they grow and their minds then can choose for themselves. Mr. Coleridge decided not to respond and didn't say a word. A moment of silence and then eventually other topics were discussed and then Samuel Coleridge asked his guest, he said, would you like to see my garden? Certainly, said the guest, and so they ventured out back to a patch of weeds, wild-growing weeds. Mr. Coleridge motioned to his guest that this was his garden. His guest said, that's not a garden, that's nothing but a bunch of wild weeds. Mr. Coleridge responded by saying, I didn't want to infringe upon the liberty of the garden in any way. I was giving it a chance to express itself. If you're going to have a garden, you're going to have to tend to it. You're going to have to do what you know to do in order to raise beautiful flowers, in order to raise, if it be a vegetable garden, beautiful, tasty vegetables. I believe the author of Hebrews, in the concluding words of the book of Hebrews, is saying to his readers, do what you know to do. Too often, it seems, as Christians, that we believe that Just let the chips fall where they may. My friend, discipleship, Christ-likeness, is a process. Certainly it's divine, and God is at work, but there is that which we must do. We must do what we know to do. No parent has ever gone through the parenting crucible and not had that experience of telling their child, you know what you need to do. Now, as they're young and immature, you may have to show them. You may have to do it. But as they grow older and then as we become adults, there are certain issues of morality, there are certain issues of behavior that we know what we ought to do. James says in the book of James, chapter 4 and verse 17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So this morning, through the Scripture and by the Holy Spirit's instruction in our hearts, I want us to be encouraged, exhorted, counseled, if you will, to do what we know to do. Read with me in the scripture beginning in verse 18 of Hebrews 13, the last chapter. We've been in here for four messages, this being the concluding message of this 13th chapter. Pray for us, 
For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. For I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Hebrews and for this concluding chapter as we've been instructed practically of our obligations, our, what we ought to do, the things that are known and even the things that we've been taught. How we pray that we who know the Lord Jesus Christ through the atoning work of Christ, through His shed blood, we who claim Him as Savior and Lord, that, Lord, we would do what we know to do. And Father, we pray for those who might not know Christ, someone that's never understood that they're a sinner and separated from You. And we pray that Your Holy Spirit would draw and convict, and that they would believe upon Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected, believe upon Him for eternal salvation. We pray this morning that You would do an eternal work in our midst, in each of our hearts, and that You might be glorified in this church and through this church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to look at these verses and thinking on the topic of the subject of doing what we know to do. And you might ask, well, what is it that we know to do? What is it that the author of Hebrews, whomever it may be, that he's instructed and that he said? Well, these are repetitious things. Isn't repetition the best form of teaching? The author of Hebrews is certainly using that as he tells us some simple things that we know that we ought to do. First, in verses 18 and 19, do what you know to do. What do we know to do? We know to pray. You know to pray. He says, pray for us. Whomever the author of Hebrews is, he's not so high and mighty, he's not so, so important that he doesn't request prayer for himself and whomever his team, whomever the others were. He says, pray for us. We see his humility. We see his, his great burden. He was a brilliant theologian. Obviously, if you study the entire book of Hebrews, you see the depth of his knowledge of uh, the superiority of Christ. And, and, and as he often speaks, as he will again in these concluding verses, of the blood of Jesus Christ. What a tremendous theologian. 
this author is, and God has inspired this word for us. But he was also a man of simple faith. I remember the story of a a famous theologian, I believe it was Karl Barth, but I'm not 100% positive. But he was once asked in a conference, what is the greatest, deepest theological thought that you've ever had? And this well-educated man responded by saying this, humbly, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Sometimes we think depth means great import, great knowledge. Well, this book of Hebrews and the author, spirit-inspired author, certainly has great knowledge and great depth, but he says simply, pray for us. Much like the Apostle Paul, who wrote to the Ephesian Christians in the sixth and final chapter of Ephesians. And Paul said, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel of grace. Paul, along with this author of Hebrews, spirit-inspired, said, pray for us. Every child of God ought to utter those three words. Pray for one another. The cooperative effort of this church and the ministries of this church and the purpose and focus of this church cannot be accomplished apart from the ministry of prayer. Life is too big for us to handle alone. Life is filled with too many conflicts for us to handle it on our own. We're bewildered, we're confused. Prayer somehow or another offered unto the Lord Believing that He alone is sovereign. He alone is the one that can grant what we petition for. Such a prayer seems to cut through the disillusions in life. Seems to to bring us understanding and perspective. Never underestimate the power of prayer because of to whom it's prayed. We don't believe simply in the power of prayer. We believe in the power of God. And prayer is our link. Believing, faith, and praying. One of the great illustrations of prayer in the ministry of the church in modern times, going even back into the 1800s, was George Mueller. George Mueller lived in in, uh, uh, England Bristol, England. He founded what was known as the Ashley Down Orphanage. And in that orphanage, George Mueller cared in in the time that he had that ministry, cared for over 10,024 orphans. Many times when they would sit down for breakfast in that orphanage, he would gather them to pray and there would not be any plan for the meal except God provide. And they would pray and thank the Lord for food that was not on the table. On one occasion they did such and then as they concluded their prayer, there was a knock at the door. The milkman with his milk cart had broken down right there and knew that they had an orphanage and he wanted to know would they take 
the milk so it not spoil. Another occasion when they had prayed without anything in their cupboard, a baker would come by after they had prayed and bring them bread. Do we believe that God can work like that today? Absolutely. The author of Hebrews says, pray for us, but look what else. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. Maybe someone had accused this author of something not honorable. But the author says, we are persuaded that we have a right to ask for prayer. We are persuaded that that we are doing what God has called us to do. He was desirous of pleasing Christ. They weren't gold brickers. They weren't leeches or someone trying to, to get something without actually earning it or trusting the Lord for it. And then he says in verse 19, But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. He wanted God to move in the ways that only God can do to bring a reunion of these believers. Some have suggested that maybe there was a problem. Maybe the author was in prison or something because of the statement in verse 23 about Timothy being set free, that maybe there was a, uh, an incarceration. Uh, I think it's just a simple desire to be reunited. And he says, pray that God would bring that about that we would be reunited, that I would see you the sooner, be restored to you. What a, what a great prayer that he prays. Prayer is somehow another, a, there's a mystery between the sovereignty of God, which I strongly hold to and we believe that God alone is in charge, He is sovereign, but that does not alienate us from our responsibility. Ignatius of Loyola was a Spanish priest in the 1500s. And Ignatius made this statement that's been repeated and revised, but but the gist of it is this. Work as though it all depends upon you, but pray as though it all depends upon God. I can't begin to say that I understand how God is sovereign in all things, but yet the Bible teaches us to pray. All I know to do is to do what I know to do, which is to pray, to pray. Church, we should pray, pray. But let's move on. In verse 20 and 21, he mentions a second matter. Do what you know to do. Well, what do I know to do? I know to pray. But I also know to do God's will. This is a beautiful benediction. It's often given at the close of some services, maybe a little more high church than we are, but some, some churches end with a, a benediction. That's a great thing. Uh, uh, this, is, this is actually a prayer. It's often read or quoted as a benediction, but it's a prayer. Isn't that interesting? Paul said first, Pray for us, but then he prays for them. For these, uh, who was Hebrews written to? Hebrew Christians that were suffering ridicule, persecution by unbelieving Jews. 
that said you ought to come back to the way of Judaism. And so Paul, the author of Hebrews, I don't know if it's Paul or not. Many believe that. I, I'm not certain. If God wanted us to know, it, he said it. So. Uh, but, but the author of Hebrews then prays. And he says, may the God of peace. What a beautiful title. The God of peace. We need peace in our world right now. We've never, in America, we've never been more divided. The world's bigger than America. The world's always been divided. The world's always been divided by sin. And that's what's wrong with America as well. We need the God of peace. And he's praying that he would do, this God of peace would do something for these Hebrew Christians. He, he sees in them great turmoil, undergoing tremendous social persecution from, these, from the unsaved Jewish world. And so they needed stability. They needed peace. They needed comfort. Don't we? Now may the God of peace... Boy, what a, what a title. What a function to see that. Do you know Him as the God of peace? Look how else he describes him. The God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep. You've got to love the titles that are given to the Lord Jesus in the Scripture. Our world today, the unbelieving world, takes his name as a curse word. But the Scripture lovingly endears us to him in such a beautiful title, the great shepherd of the sheep. This God of peace who brought up the Lord Jesus from the dead. He's speaking of the resurrection of Christ. The peace of God belongs to true Christians who've believed upon Jesus. But then they are united to the living Christ who was resurrected from the dead. Christ is our life, and in Him we find strength. In Him we are able, as Paul said, to do all things through Christ. It's in Christ. May the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. We are the sheep of His pasture. Do you embrace that as a child of God? What a fitting title. Sheep are the most dumb and dependent animal that we can think of. Sheep need help. They're helpless creatures. They have no wisdom. They have no weapons. They're forever running off and, and getting attacked, getting lost. And they are utterly helpless to defend themselves. Think about it. Sheep don't have long fangs to be able to attack and tear the flesh of their enemy. They're not swift of foot. They can't dive into the water and swim away. They're utterly helpless. What does the Lord use to describe us that have believed upon the resurrected Christ? We are the sheep of His pasture. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. You think about that and focus on why the sheep need a shepherd. Our dependence, our, our, our helplessness. The story is told about a village where 
Everyone in the village had their own little lamb, their own sheep. But the, the village chose one shepherd that every day the shepherd would come through the village and he would call the sheep to go follow him and he would take them. All of the, all of the sheep would follow him out to a pasture where they would lie down, where they would be fed, where the shepherd would lead them to the still waters for drink. And at the end of the day, the shepherd then would lead the sheep back to their end of the villages and their individual owners. Can you imagine if that shepherd had lost one of those sheep? He had to be reliable. He had to bring security. This sheep was the biggest possession that those families in that village had. Such is our shepherd. Oh, the security in seeing this statement in verse 20. The great shepherd of the sheep. He's never lost one. No matter how we may fall, no matter how we may stumble, he's never lost one. Praise God. But what are we to do? You say, do what we know to do. Well, we see the God of peace, the Lord Jesus raised from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. And all of this is through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This refers to the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed, that we might be in relationship, in covenant with the great shepherd, with the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ is the basis for our so great salvation. The blood of Christ is the basis. Not what you do. Not what you've done. Not who you are or who your parents might be or who your children might be. But it's the blood of Christ that brings us into covenant. The author, the, John, in, in Revelation, in Revelation 1, describes the Lord Jesus saying, To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. This author in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 says that it's through his blood, his own blood, we enter, or he entered into the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The cross means the forgiveness of sins and a break from that old life of self-reliance. And the resurrection means union with the life of Christ through the blood of the everlasting covenant. But here, what are we to do? He's our God of peace. He's uh, the Lord Jesus raised from the dead. He's our great shepherd. He, it's through His everlasting covenant and the shed blood. What are we to do? Look at verse 21. He makes you complete or equipped in every good work to do His will. What the author is praying here is that God would equip them to do His will. Do what you know to do. Do God's will. Now I know we, there, there's mystery surrounding that statement to so many people. But can I oversimplify what the will of God is for you and for me? Just a general summary. 
That the will of God basically is in three areas or three concepts. One, that we live a holy life. It's never not God's will for you to live a holy life. It's always His will for you to live a holy life. Secondly, proclaiming the gospel. What is God's will for my life? Live a holy life honoring Christ. Spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. That's always God's will. It's not just the job of the preacher. We all are to be involved in proclaiming the good news. You do it with your lips and you do it with your life. Making the gospel known. God's will involves not only living a holy life, proclaiming the gospel, but building up fellow saints. What are you doing in your life to build up brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you are teaching classes. Some of you are encouraging with words. But there is a function that you have that's God's will. And God is equipping you for that. May He make you complete in every good work to do His will. Why? To do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight. That's the life that we want to live, is it not, church? To be well-pleasing. God equips, He supplies the power. It ought to be simple. We're well-pleasing in His sight. And look at this, verse 21, through Jesus Christ. All of this is through Him. The secret to Christian living, the secret to doing God's will is through Christ not through your strength, not through yourself, but through Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. What dynamic words. The Lord Jesus Christ, it's through Him. Those are life-changing words. It's not through you. It's through Him. Do what you know to do. What do I know to do? Pray. Pray for one another. Do God's will. Live a holy life. Proclaim the gospel. Edify fellow saints. Lastly, in verse 22, really through the end of the chapter, but let me highlight this in verse 22. What do we know to do? We know to receive counsel. Exhortation. He says, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation. For I have written to you in few words. No doubt the author here is going back and reminding them of the exhortations, the counsel that he's given throughout the book of Hebrews. You know, the, the, the Bible has some pretty good counsel. <laughs> if we'd get into the Word of God, we would find an answer to a lot of our issues. That's, that's what he's saying. I appeal to you, brethren... Bear with the word of exhortation. Counsel. Some of these exhortations were blistering, scathing words. Some of them were encouraging words. Hebrews 2, 1. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. One talking about losing salvation. He's talking about getting away from grace. Walking with the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, 
These were the exhortations that the author is speaking of here in verse 22. Bear with these words. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, lest we let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. What a great word of exhortation. Press on. Chapter 10 as well, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Then chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. These are just some of the exhortation, the counsel that was given to these Hebrew Christians and ultimately to us. What do we know to do? We know to pray. We know to do God's will. We need to hear God speak to us through His Word. Do what He says. These warnings were to shake these Hebrew Christians out of their lethargy, out of their apathy, and to get them in walking with the Lord. Oh, that we might do so. That we would persevere with patient endurance. Winston Churchill was probably the greatest statesman of the the 20th century. We know of him obviously from history and multiple movies, some that have done well in describing his life, some that have uh, maybe tried to make him look bad. As a young man, he was a student at a, at a preparatory school called Harrow. H-A-R-R-O-W, Harrow. While he was a student there, he wasn't very well uh, spoken. He wasn't even the brightest student. and had no leadership. After he finished Harrow, he entered the British military, the British army, and he fought in Africa and in India, and then eventually returned to his beloved Britain to get involved in politics. What a leader he was during World War II. He was well respected. Twice he was elected prime minister of Great Britain or the the British Empire. When his service had concluded in politics, he was invited back to that preparatory school where he had uh, matriculated as a student. And, and he, he was to give a, a commencement address. And so that day comes and Churchill is introduced by the headmaster of that academy a glowing introduction and Mr. Churchill stepped up to the podium and he said these words, Young gentlemen, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never. And then he sat down. They were shocked. But his words were spot on. And I believe what God is saying to us 
through this lovely letter called Hebrews, he's saying in 2021, don't go back, never give up. Christ is sufficient. He's all that we need. And what you need to do is to do what you know to do. We want some secret or some mysterious hidden element to come along and let's do that. Let's study that. God, it seems to be saying to us through His Word, do what you know to do. It's simple. Pray. Do God's will. Hear the Word of God, the Word of exhortation. Bear with it. Do it. Never Give up. If you've never trusted Christ, the concluding word of Hebrews, verse 25, is a word of grace. And that's what he would say to the unbeliever today, is my grace is sufficient for you. Believe upon Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whose blood was shed to secure the everlasting covenant. Not temporary, but everlasting. Everything about this letter oozes of the security of our Savior that He secures those who are His sheep, those who believe. Have you trusted Him? His grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of Your Word, And how we pray, Heavenly Father, rejoicing that He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Thank You for the peace of God. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace that is sufficient. We pray for believers today that we would continue on doing what we know to do. We pray for the lost that they might be saved, that they might look to the one who shed His blood to secure the everlasting covenant. That they would look to the Lord Jesus for salvation. May you be glorified in each of our lives is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.